0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappen On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to welcome you to the Rabbi Daniel Lappen Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And the great thing about this show is that scientific consensus has been reached on the value of this show. That's right, 999 scientists whose names are available on the record if you need them have all attested to the fact that this show contains the highest value per word of any other show available worldwide on the web. Another group of 777 scientists, whose names have also been made available on the record, uh, have attested that this show, of all the shows available on the web, this show has the highest value per recorded minute. Now, obviously, there is a slight difference in those two ratios, but the bottom line is that scientific consensus has been reached about this show, and that's all you really need to know. The only other thing you need to know is that only very rarely do I make a mistake. Well, maybe maybe not that r- Okay, fine, from time to time. Uh, whenever that does happen, I do my best to correct it, as soon as possible. So last week's show was on the question of why so many smart people believe in climate change. And I spoke about recycling as being the sacred sacrament of secular fundamentalism, the rapidly growing religion of urban atheists. And, uh, and so it is. But I did get a very interesting letter which contained a lot of information that I didn't know. And while I'm sure that you probably knew a whole lot of it, you may be interested to hear some of it. So this is from a guy called Dan. I'm going to leave out his last name just because, um, yeah, privacy factors. I don't want anybody uh, to feel that in writing to me they risk – in this day and age, publicizing your identity is, is not a wise thing to do. So uh, Dan is an engineer. Listen to this. Rabbi Lapin, I am listening to your number 38 podcast. What he means by that is that on some platforms, uh, the podcasts are numbered. I think uh, SoundCloud, I think, is one that numbers them. Maybe iTunes does as well. I'm not sure. But at any rate, he's referring to the podcast last week which was called Why Do So Many Smart People Believe in Climate Change? I'm listening to your number 38 podcast, and I just heard you state that glass manufacturers do not use recycled glass. I'm not sure where you heard that, but as you would say, it simply is not the case. (laughs) I am a director of engineering for a containers glass company, and I can verify that we use on average 30% cullet. And he explains that cullet is the word For recycled glass, for the current market price of recycled glass, it is a lower overall cost for us to use cullet when compared to 100% sand, limestone, soda ash, etc., all the raw materials that go into glass. We have some facilities using over 80% cullet. The energy required for completely raw materials is higher than using preformed glass. Please think through the amount of energy it takes to convert raw material into glass uh, compared with the dramatically less energy required for remelting already formed glass. I have over 20 years in glass manufacturing. I can also verify that float glass, uh, that by the way is glass that is made by pouring, um, this is me talking, that is pouring molten glass onto a layer of molten steel. Uh, or maybe sometimes I think they use mercury, but a molten metal uh, in order to get an absolutely flat surface. And this is used for windows and mirrors and so on. I can also verify that float glass uses only about 10 to 13% colored, meaning recycled uh, mayonnaise jars from your kitchen. However, the majority of that comes from internal trim waste. This may be what you have heard. What it means by that is that when they trim the glass, they end up, with loads and loads of broken glass lying all over the cutting room floor, and they throw that back into the cauldron, and that's also called colored, even though that's not your mayonnaise jars. Uh, Fiberglass uses upwards of 80% colored as well, right? And that, that makes a lot of sense to me, because there's no question of glass quality there at all. In fact, you don't even have to wash out your mayonnaise jar, and it'll still find its way into fiberglass. That's just me. Uh, I love the podcast and your written material, but do not agree with you on President Trump. Best regards, Dan, followed with last name, phone number, email, etc. So I responded to him, thanking him very much for the correction, and said that I'm actually going to read his letter on the podcast next week so as that people will get correct and up-to-date information on the subject of recycled glass. So he wrote back and said, Rabbi Lappin, thank you so much for responding to my email. I really appreciate your willingness to share my email. I agree with your overall point of the podcast related to recycling. From those who push it, it is a religious act. They are derived by some, driven I think he means, by some unseen force to want to feel good about themselves. Creating fear and then believing they have the answer allows them to feel wanted and needed. Just a bit more background on glass. I know you love information. Uh, and by the way, I found this very interesting. I hope you do too. The demand side for colored, and just remember, colored means your old mayonnaise jars, uh, but it can also mean broken glass on the glass factory floor. And there's a huge difference there. At any rate, the demand side for colored is driven by three primary, uh, primary areas chemistry, quality, and manufacturing. The glass chemistry for float glass. That means windows, windshields, furniture, mirrors, etc. And for bottles and for fiberglass and for tableware and for light fixtures and television tubes are all different. Different enough that specific minor ingredients required for a specific type of glass actually creates defects when trying to make another type of glass. Container glass manufacturers avoid float glass colored for this specific reason. The required quality of the glass also determines how much color it can be used overall. For example, float glass has an extremely high optical clarity requirement. Customers do not want a window or a mirror or a glass shelf with a dot in the middle of it uh, or anywhere on it. However, a visual defect that is located in the heel of a glass bottle or inside the fiberglass fibers of an insulation package are not a showstopper. Float glass has the highest visual quality requirements. This has increased over the years. One example would be the Chrysler Automotive Group transition to the cab forward design for windshields. Um, you, if you think of like minivans like the town and country, and other, they were early, this is me talking, this, they were early in having a very sloped windshield, and when you have a very sloped windshield, Uh, you're basically creating more internal space. So now back to Dan. Prior to that, the angle of the windshield was much closer to 90 degrees. A visual defect that looks like a dot is actually a cylinder, but at 90 degrees to the surface, it looks like a dot. When Chrysler continued to shallow out the windshield angle, uh, the cylinder suddenly went from a dot to a line. This greatly increased the quality requirement. For this reason and others, float has the lowest allowable color as part of its batch formula. Lastly, manufacturing drives a portion of demand formulation. If one out of two hundred bottles has a defect, a container plant can easily isolate that container. Additionally, depending on the defect, the container can be sent batch as batch or thrown away. Um, dimensional error compared to foreign objects. etc. said, however, a defect that shows up in the middle of a float glass ribbon may require that an entire large piece of glass is removed, although this has improved greatly over the years as line op- org- optimization has improved to cut around the defect. All of the above drives the colored usage percentages I listed in my earlier email. It's also the reason that you have never heard of a float glass manufacturer pushing for bottle bill type laws. Float glass does not want most consumer recycled colored on the other hand container glass manufacturers do so the result is that glass container glass companies push for deposits on bottles as long as the greatest recycling effort results in segregated glass colored returns glass bottles only it makes sense please note that i agree most politicians are simply driven by this belief system as you stated Glass recycling demand was strong long before politicians jumped onto it and used it as part of their narrative. Sorry for the long wording reply. I really do appreciate all that you and Susan do to help share and make sense of so many subjects. You are by far the person that I share the most. Your podcasts make it into dinner table conversations church small group discussions and workplace business examples i'm very eager to learn more from you in the future please keep doing what you are doing sincerely dan and those words uh, really make me very happy um i get unreasonably joyful uh, whenever i hear that my work does actually bring value to people and and when it brings people together in conversation uh, whether it's at your dinner table with your family or business, any time you know that I'm a big believer of uh, a phrase that's wrongly attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt. It actually goes back much longer than that. And it speaks about the advice, and you've heard me say it many times, that it's far better uh, to talk about ideas whenever you are together with people because that becomes uplifting and bonding conversation. Um, If you can't pull yourself to do that, then people talk about things, you know, your your, your car, sports, whatever. Uh, And finally, if you can't even pull yourself to that level, then conversation revolves around people. And um, I I got a sad but also uplifting phone call. I was talking to one of our daughters who doesn't live at home. Happily, she is married. And uh, she told Susan and me that they – uh, were invited for a festival meal to friends. And to the intense discomfort of uh, her and her husband, conversation was all about people. Uh, people they knew of, uh, people in the community. It was just nothing but gossip about other people. And uh, uh, my daughter and her, and her husband said they couldn't wait to get away, and they, they just know they're never going to accept an invitation back with those people again. So kudos to that Lapinette and her husband, who, who know how um, pathetic it is to re- have conversation revolve around people slightly better about things, but best of all, about ideas. Uh, the idea that uh, we're going to be looking into more deeply in today's show um, has to do with um, women being feminine and men being masculine, again... Unbelievably provocative and controversial subject. But um, I was struck by a news item this week, and you know, it's easy to find. It makes fascinating reading, and the comments, depending on the platform on which you read it, are even more fascinating. Uh, this article, this story has been picked up. I have no idea how it got around so quickly. But it's being run by Fox News and the New York Post and the Mirror and the Daily Mail, a whole bunch of papers and websites, both in the United States and the United Kingdom. And it's all about a uh, charming young woman called Katrina Holti, H-O-L-T-E, and her husband Lars, L-A-R-S. They've been married about three years. She had a high-pressure job. She described it as such with a payroll company. And one day, Katrina goes to her husband, Lars, and says, I want to stay home. I want to quit work, and I want to be a housewife. I want to just build our home and focus on that. Lars, God bless him, that a young man should be so smart. Um, Well, that is really something, because his response, (laughs) well, with wisdom and insight, rare in somebody in his 20s, Lars, instead of saying to his wife, oh, I don't know how we're going to manage on only one income, he said, of course, I would be delighted if you did that. And in so doing, Lars became... The focus of the envy of millions of men around the world. Because from that day onwards, when Lars got up to get ready to go to work, his wife was dressed and looking beautiful and having breakfast with him before he heads out the door. And when he comes in through the door after work in the afternoon, Lars finds his wife rested, bathed, relaxed, beautifully got up, ready to put her arms around his neck and greet him and welcome him back home, sit him down with something to drink and some snacks as dinner gets ready. And Lars believes that he has gone to heaven. Uh, Katrina, for her part, finds deep feminine fulfillment in everything she is doing. And she is taking delight in sort of reverting back. And she says that she finds the clothing that women used to wear in the 50s to have been far more feminine. And there is a some of these articles have pictures of her. And by the way, I've got to tell you something, something which I think any man who has not had his masculinity methodically erased molecule by molecule from his personality will recognize that uh, when a woman you love is preparing a meal for you, one of the sexiest Items of clothing imaginable is an apron, and you will indeed see Katrina uh, preparing dinner in an apron. Oh, my goodness, quite remarkable. So let me just uh, give you a little bit of the the actual specifics from the article. After three years of happy marriage and getting stressed out by her job, uh, Katrina decided to uh, transform Uh, I'm living how I've always wanted to. It's my dream life, and my husband shares my vision. Uh, It's a lot of work. I do tons of dishes, laundry, and ironing, but I love it. And it's helping to take care of my husband, and that makes me really happy. She says that her husband earns much more money than she does, and she feels in this way she is supporting him. Are you ever, Katrina? Yes, of course you are. Uh, A man with a wife like that, who does him the supreme honor of allowing him to support her. What a woman, and what a lucky guy. Uh, She says, uh, when I look at everything going on in the world now, I feel like I belong in a nicer, more old-fashioned time. Uh, I agree with old-fashioned values, like being a housewife, taking care of your family, nurturing the people in it, and keeping your home in excellent condition so everyone feels relaxed. Hello? (laughs) Hello? Um, Katrina says, I spoke to my husband and told him I wanted to be a housewife. And he said that was fine with him. In my view, little did Lars know what life was going to transform into. Katrina says, it was a fantastic feeling when I quit. I can now do what I want to. And I run my house as I want to run it. I am a full-time homemaker. And she's as happy as could be, uh, Halty's typical day starts at 6.30. She wakes up, lays out Lars's clothing before preparing his breakfast and packing his lunch. Um, then she she when he goes to work, she exercises, and uh, she goes upstairs for a shower and a full face of vintage makeup, complete with Pond's cold cream and Revlon red lipstick. Uh, with well-drawn eyebrows and curlers in her hair. When she looks her best, it's time to get to her chores. I will then spend a a good hour doing the laundry dusting and sweeping. I make sure everything is kept in its place. After lunch when my house is tidy and smelling fresh, I'll go upstairs and sew either for myself or my customers or try out new patterns. Uh, She's got a home business, a sewing home business. It's, um, um, It's called Edelweiss Patterns, by the way. Um, she starts preparing supper at about 4 p.m. to ensure everything is ready when Lars arrives home from work. Um, I usually cook recipes from uh, the olden era like pot roasts, chicken pies, and I make sure they are vegetables. Uh, when Lars gets home, he actually likes to hang up his own coat, but uh, I don't know what that's got to do with anything. She serves him a refreshing glass of something to drink, a plate of snacks, cheese, dried fruit or nuts, before putting the finishing touches on her entree. Um, after dinner, we play board games, and they, they try and minimize the television. In fact, they don't even ha- have it out visible in their living room. Um, and she, she feels it necessary to say, she says, Lars is not a controlling hubby. He grew up in a house where he helped his mom with the cooking and the cleaning, so he's not domineering in any way, she says. Um, if I did, heaven forbid, have dinner late, he would not make a fuss, but I can tell it means a lot to him that it's normally on time. She says, look, a man needs his wife to make him feel spoiled every once in a while. Besides, that's the payoff because he makes a lot more money than I do. He works very long hours and makes my dreams come true. So I try to make his dreams come true, too. It's an equal partnership. <laughs> God bless this woman. Um, so there it is. Um, I think that's about the, the main gist of it. Uh, it's It's beautiful. She looks forward to having four children. Uh, I'm not sure I'll be able to keep my house in perfect order, but we would love to have a big family," she says, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay, that's the the gist of it, but uh, quite quite lovely. And as I said, what is so fascinating is the cavalcade of outrage and barely suppressed fury uh, from people who write in and on the comment section and. Uh, and complain about how she's setting back the women's movement, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, look, bottom line is the left hates masculinity and femininity. The left loathes the polarity that God built into the world when it, he says male and female, he created them. And uh, women desire masculine men. And deep down, men desire feminine women. And uh, I will explain a whole lot more of that as we move on with the show. But um, I also want to mention that there are only a few more days of our once-a-year sale on our library packs. Uh, This is a very economical price at which to obtain everything that we have created, all the audio material, all the video material, and all the printed material, and uh, it's a fabulous deal, it really is. We only do this once a year, and we do it to uh, make it some form of compensation for those of you who are inconvenienced when we close our store for the Jewish Biblical Festivals, which proliferate this time of the year with Rosh Hashanah, New Year and Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, which is next Wednesday, followed by two days at the beginning of Tabernacles, followed by two days at the end of Tabernacles. And and so we've got a number of three-day weeks to deal with, which makes it obviously hard for us to do our work, but it also makes it hard for you and I to do transactions together because we don't, Uh, want to conduct business on our festivals so uh, the store is closed but when it is open uh, you will be able to for until the period of the festivals are finished you will be able to get the library pack for a very good price now it's going to make so much sense that even if you already have some items in your possession uh, you may still want to do this even though it'll duplicate you a few items And what that does is happily provide you with gifts for either hostess gifts or other occasions, birthday gifts or people in your family or friend circle who can benefit from some of this ancient Jewish wisdom in the areas of family, friendship, and finance. And that's what every one of these products adds to uh, the recipient's life. Uh, they each also give wonderful opportunities for bonding in other words listening or reading this material together with someone important in your life uh bonds it gives you an a, a mechanism for talking about ideas and i will tell you this that let's imagine you're a very you know an average person like most of us and then all of a sudden you hear this idea that there is real value in making sure that from now onwards your conversations are, heaven forbid, not about people, only seldom about things, but mostly about ideas. Now you start trying to think of ideas to talk about, and you're not used to it, right? It, I mean, for heaven's sake, it's like asking somebody who doesn't do any uh, weight training to suddenly start doing 100-pound weights. No, it doesn't work like that. You've got to work your way up. And so it is with learning to be able to introduce idea concepts, to introduce a conversation revolving around a concept. Uh, yeah, it helps very much. And what you will find is that any one of these products, and go to our website, by the way, at com, go to the store and read about the library pack, and you will see there's not a single one of these resources That will not spill out, not one or two, but literally dozens of ideas. And while you're listening or while you're reading, you pull out one of your three-by-five index cards that you keep wrapped in a rubber band in your pocket as an idea capture machine, and, and you just write down. Some of the ideas that occur to you that would really work for your dinner table or your next meeting. And by the way, business meetings are like opening business meetings with a conceptual idea. Uh, if it is a religious business group, then it might be something directly from the Bible. And there are plenty of those in the library pack that I'm describing. If I'm uh, starting a meeting with a business group that is not religiously or biblically oriented, then that's fine. I still will start with a few minutes conversation on a topic, and you'd be amazed how quickly people respond and and how intuitively good it makes people think as human beings to express our highest humanity in conversing on topics that – are about abstract ideas, not about tangible things or about living people. So all of that at the library pack. Go to RabbiDanielLappin.com and uh, go to the store. Read up about library pack. Take a look at the price. See if that fits your budget. Remember, you're going to end up probably with some gifts for other people that will be valued and appreciated. And all you've got to do is gift wrap them, maybe with a uh, nice little card to go along with that. So, okay, great. All of that is the uh, special sale on library packs over the next few days. Have a look at what's included, by the way. You'll be astonished. We're not talking about just 10 or 20 items. It's more than that. And uh, for very good reason, we call it the uh, sale of the year. Go for it. All right. Uh, Are we ready to move on? I think so. What is happening to women and why? Now, One of the great pieces of advice that I was given before I started my first book, the book, by the way, was called America's Real War, and uh, it is uh, subtitled, perhaps in what may well be the longest subtitle in history, An Orthodox Jewish Rabbi Insists That Judeo-Christian Values Are Vital for Our Nation's Survival. And uh, the book is... uh, Uh, is is due to be released we are working on it actually it needs to be re-released the book the book first came out uh, a number of years ago but uh, it continues to sell and we want to redo it because when i did it uh, the word islam sounded like a a delhi specialty nobody knew what it meant Uh, nothing had happened yet i wrote the book before 9-11 and so the book really does need an update But I tell you all of that only to tell you that uh, as I was getting ready to put pen to paper, a good friend who is an outstanding writer, far, far better than I am, uh, said to me, he said, what are you working on? I said, the introduction. He said, don't do an introduction. Call it chapter one and just get into the book. Uh, In a speech, it's repeated wisdom, and I'm sure you've heard this from many people. When you get up to give a speech, tell them what you're going to say, Say it and then tell them what you said to wrap it up. Now, I do a lot of speeches. I don't always follow that format. I'm not sure that it is one of these rules that uh, is, is reliable enough to, to really be absorbed into your regular pattern. But, uh, but when it comes to books, this is a, a good piece of advice, and I've, I've held to it since over the course of writing seven or eight books since then. I've very much held to this of not doing an introduction. Just just get on with it and say what you have to say. You don't have to tell people what it's about. Uh, the reviews will do it. The back cover will do that. But uh, here as well, I don't think I have to give you a, an introduction to some of the things we're, we're going to be talking about today. I'm just going to do it, all right? Just get right into it. And uh, so here, here is the interesting thing. I've come across this now. Uh, about uh, four times in the last three weeks. Somehow, and you know how it is, right? It's like what, uh, what uh, is sometimes called synchronicity, right? When things just happen by themselves. Uh, Carl Jung, the distinguished psychiatrist who uh, wisely began, began to see through Freud and ended his friendship with Freud eventually, Uh, Carl Jung said, you know, synchronicity, things just happen uh, in ways that could easily be written off as coincidence. But by using the word synchronicity, uh, we're more likely to stop and think about why. Well, uh, numerous times over the last three weeks, I uh, found coming across my radar screen the fact that women are more than twice as likely as men to uh, face depression, to deal with depression. So my first thought was, okay, is there a difference between uh, young women and older women? And I'm not sure, you know, where the the cutoff point is, but, um, you know, say maybe maybe 50 or something like that. Uh, Anyone up to 50, okay, you're a young woman. And you know what? If you're 51, I'll grandfather you in. You're, You're still 52? Okay, fine. Uh, But by and large, okay, so I thought to myself, all right, fine, women tend to live a little longer than men, and uh, on average, so maybe women are alone longer than men are alone. Uh, Could that be it? Well, turns out that the gap between women and men is greater with younger women. So that's not an explanation. Uh, So what does or what would account for this uh, strange difference. After all, we're told that uh, women and men are are largely the same and that there shouldn't be any concerns about distinction or difference. And so, uh, not surprisingly, when I began to look into the conventionally supplied explanations for why women are so much more liable to to suffer from depression – Uh, You won't be shocked to hear that uh, Psychology Today magazine, which is a total waste, um, regarded sexism, ongoing sexism, to be one of the explanations. And uh, another one they have is genetic predisposition. Now, look, uh, I've been told that um, genetics means absolutely nothing. Genetics doesn't even determine if you are a woman. But yet genetics determines if you're susceptible to depression. I don't know enough about that to, to know uh, right or wrong, but it seems to me to be mock-worthy, so I'll mock it. Uh, but they have enormous trouble finding an explanation. So I wanted to give you uh, what ancient Jewish wisdom uh, would have to say – ...on why it is that women suffer more from depression. Number one, I would question whether that is in fact true. I think that uh, men have a different way of dealing with it. Uh, Most of the men I can think of, you know, people I know fairly well... ...I think would, would rather have a tarantula laying eggs in their ears then go and see somebody about depression. So it's quite possible, in in my, in my take here, quite possible that men suffer from what is called depression uh, just as much as, as women do, excepting there's no way of knowing it because they don't tell anybody about it, right? And if you are a man, you probably are nodding your head here. And if you are a woman who lives with a man, you're for sure nodding your head here, uh, so that that is that is one aspect. Another aspect of it is that uh, men uh, have ways uh, of working these things out, not always productively and not always satisfactorily, but um, uh, we are slightly better equipped. And and as I say, what we do is isn't necessarily always a good thing, but. There are things we do and uh, and patterns we fall into. One example is violence, as a consequence of, of depression. Uh, again, it's not it's not spoken of much in the psychiatric literature, but it but it is nonetheless a very real thing. Uh, if you look up uh, depression in the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of the uh, Mental Health Profession, uh, you find quite a lot of information on it and. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical. All right, I understand there is such a thing as as clinical depression, and I I understand uh, how it debilitates and and the pain and so on. But I also understand at the same time that uh, there is a vast growth in the mental health industry and that uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual's main function is uh, to create billing categories. Okay, fine. So... Don't want to go too much into that, but uh, but there is a certain amount of skepticism. Uh, so, number one, as I said, I'm not sure that that statistic is necessarily true because I think uh, men uh, suffer the pain of, of being depressed and sad and miserable but just deal with it in a very different way from women. Uh, but given that... Uh, that It is spoken of, and it's treated as a reality. Uh, We'll look at a a few other possible reasons, I think, that could be part of of what is going on here. Um, It is um, very necessary, in order to be a happy person, it is very necessary to embrace certain unchangeable things about you. And so... um, me, for instance, uh, when I went through my depressed stage, and I'm I'm not I'm not mocking people who suffer from depression. I, mean, I know it's painful, but uh, uh, when I discovered that I was losing my hair, um, you know, it was it was not great news, but uh, I did know this principle of ancient Jewish wisdom that you just had to embrace what is. I knew that I was not going to um, ever be able to wear a toupee. A toupee, I just knew I couldn't do that. That was um, that's just not being me. Uh, I could not see myself going through um, uh, Rogaine or any of the other drugs that that apparently assist with with this problem. I could not see myself going through a surgery uh, to put in. Uh, these little um, hair uh, bundles of skin get embedded in your scalp. I knew I wasn't going to do that. So once uh, once I had rejected uh, rugs, drugs, and plugs, I had no option but to embrace it. And I'm not going to say I, <laughs> I did that happily, but I, I did it in a perfectly sort of resigned sort of way. And you know what I did? I just, uh, I just went for the bald look. I, I just was not going to fool myself with trying to comb hair over my uh, scalp, or uh, it just wasn't going to work. So I I just basically went to the barber and I said, uh, leave the eyebrows, take everything else. And uh, away away we went, and and that's the look I have embraced and accepted ever since then. Um, I will say, however, that I do feel a victim of racism uh, here, because almost without exception, I've noticed that bald looks great on black guys. Bald looks just fine on black guys. Uh, bald on me, completely different. And uh, it's, again, I just have to accept and embrace that, just one of those things. What, what, what can you do? Um, another aspect of what you have to just accept for who you are is uh, your physical nature, your, ma- your maleness and your masculinity. Uh, for men, that is an important thing. Since masculinity is under cultural assault in America today, or shall I say in parts of America today, parts of America that voted for Hillary Clinton, that would, that would be a neat and simple way of defining which parts of America uh, we're talking about. Um, I can well understand that there may, in fact, be depression among men who are not allowed to any longer to feel or or be masculine. However, I think that the pressure on women is considerably worse, much worse. I think for women to be feminine today is uh, very stressful because they get looked down on. There was a time where uh, girls yearned to be able to put the word housewife next to the word occupation when they have to fill in a form. Right. Because housewife was seen as a as a wonderful elevated. Now, I realize that to many, many people that term sounds antiquated and, and anachronistic and let alone uh, uh, retarded and uh, and um, oppressive. But it is how it was. Uh, being a housewife meant building a nest. And it was a wonderful expression of femininity, right? It was something that young guys who got married never understood, right? To them, getting married initially meant sex. To the woman, while the, the closeness and the intimacy was obviously all part of it, uh, being able to to put up curtains in the apartment and to make the apartment hers and to get some furniture and to... To basically create a home was a thrilling expression of femininity, that uh, there was an exciting and wonderful thing to do. Um, Dressing in a feminine kind of a way, that's not only something that sends a thrill down her man's back, but uh, it's something that women enjoy doing, accepting you're not allowed to do that. When I say you're not allowed to, uh, there are cultural smirks at feminine clothes feminine dresses and every now and then you know I as I look through some of the fashion magazines to keep up with the culture uh, I see them talking about oh return to flirty frills and a turn to feminine feminine uh, clothing well yeah uh, it crops up every now and then and, and maybe only uh, at the higher reaches of fashion but in terms of of what you see people dressed in uh, women particularly Uh, For a woman to feel comfortable indulging her femininity, I think is stressful today. And if so, that would also be a factor in why women uh, feel depression at a greater rate than men. But I think there's an even bigger reason, and the bigger reason is something I'm going to tell you about just as soon as we come back. The resource, I commend your attention. And, and many of you ask, you know, we get these emails all the time. How can I support your work? Uh, well, my work is with the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. And uh, one of the ways that you can support what I do here on the podcast is simply making use of the resources that we prepare for you. And the website is rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, head over to the store, take a look at a resource called the Genesis Journeys Set. Uh, it's eight hours of information. And rather than me tell you all about it here, I'd much rather you went on my website at com and uh, read about it and see. Uh, I, I can almost guarantee that if you are a person who's interested in how the world really works – then uh, you'll find something there of value to you, and uh, there is a special offer on that as well. It also comes with uh, four full-color, 16-page study guides that fill you in and give you some of the uh, material that will last you in terms of understanding what's really going on there. I'll tell you a little bit more about it, but at any rate, for now, it's rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look at the Genesis Journey set. And let me come back in just a moment with yet a bigger reason for women feeling uh, miserable, upset, sad, and yes, even depressed. I've got to explain, uh, in, in spite of the current conventions out there, that uh, the differences between men and women are very slight, very minor, and certainly not worth thinking about, not worth taking into account either in the workplace or socially or, for that matter, uh, even maritally. And th- this is the, the pressure that is being brought to bear, uh, to a large extent, on men um, who feel that uh, somehow or another, if, if their masculine natures emerge, if uh, who they are comes across, it will be slapped down by the woman they're dating And little by little, men have been taught to to repress their masculinity uh, because the expression of masculinity suggests that there is a polar opposite called femininity, and that this distinction between masculinity and femininity is a key part of what the good Lord arranged for human happiness not only for human happiness, but for human creativity and productivity, which are linked to human happiness. And so in exactly the same way as, uh, you know, I might look at uh, the Oroville Dam in Northern California, uh, which uh, until it had some troubles in the winter of 2016, 2017, um, it was generating hydroelectricity, right? How does it do that? Well, Because there's about 400 feet of water on one side of the dam, meaning the height. And, well, a little less than that, actually. And on the other side, the river level is far, far below. And so when water flows from the high point to a low point, um, it can create power. It can spin the turbines and create hydroelectricity. Fantastic. Really valuable. Um, Really... If the so-called environmentalists were serious about the environment, if they were really, if they really cared about that, they would be encouraging the building of uh, many, many more dams everywhere around the country because hydroelectric power is fantastic. It's, um, it is truly, it, it, it's clean. It's cost. It's wonderful. It's very, very cost-effective. But of course, we know that environmentalists are driven by a uh, fevered eagerness to uh, damage America uh, more than anything else. And uh, on a larger scale, you'll laugh at me and you'll say this is absurd, but it is to uh, reduce the impact of Western civilization. But uh, in terms of actually caring about the environment, no, of course not. If they did, they would be the first in line pushing for the licensing of new nuclear power stations because uh, the only thing that's even close to hydroelectric power in its effectiveness is nuclear power. But uh, they know full well that nothing can come. The, the direction of emphasizing uh, wind and solar had a lot to do with the economic suppression during the Obama presidency. Uh, it doesn't work. It's just not cost-effective. So for the government to be pushing that area instead of coal in the short term and hydroelectric and nuclear in the long term uh, just was part of what exerted a chilling effect on the economy during those eight years. Whether that is going to change now or not, uh, we shall see. But certainly, if you care about the environment, push for hydroelectric and nuclear, obviously. Point being that uh, creativity only results from difference, all right? The reason we have uh, two little holes in an electrical outlet is because for there to be power, it's got to flow from somewhere to somewhere else. Um, the water has to go from somewhere high to somewhere low. If somebody came along and said, you know what, I'm a hydro egalitarian. I want the water level to be the same everywhere, Uh if they did, if they got the water level the same height on either sides of the dam wall, the turbines would slow down and stop. You've got to have it that way. And so similarly, the, some of the the grand tension and creativity in human life flows from masculinity and femininity. And so masculinity, masculinity is culturally uh, uh, silenced and uh, and and eroded. Uh, partially because its existence would suggest that at the far pole there is something called femininity, and that, too, has been aggressively uh, suppressed and, uh, and, and uh, fought down. You see it in, in a number of different ways. Um, you see it in uh, the language that girls now use. Once upon a time, uh, the femininity of a woman was what stopped men from using vulgar language in her presence, Right. It was a perfectly natural, perfectly normal kind of reaction. Where God, even boys at school would say, "You know, there's there's a girl here. You know, shut up! Don't talk like that. There's girls here." Uh, people would would say that, and and people accepted it and acknowledged it. But that was a function of this magical aura called femininity that women and girls would radiate. And it exerted enormous power on men. And in, in that sense, I've got to think it must have been a thrilling thing for it, it, for a woman. I think. I mean, I, I can only imagine what that feels like. But to to know that your femininity is radiating an aura that that bewitches. Any man within reach, not not in a negative kind of a way at all, but but certainly makes him want to hold a door open for you or or help you. Basically, to be a knight to your damsel. I mean that that's what femininity uh, stimulates in men. Good thing, positive thing, and above all, uh, a source of enormous creativity and the ability to be creative is very much linked to the uh, ability to be happy. And uh, having this in one's life is a very, very happy-making thing. So now for men, uh, the, the presence of feminine women adds to their happiness. But what happens if they can't and if they don't have it? Well, I'm sorry to say that men have other outlets. Uh, men can find an outlet in pure sexuality. Uh, It can even reach into uh, areas of pornography. There are outlets that do not produce happiness but do produce an illusion of happiness, which for men who have no uh, woman in their lives without having a feminine woman in their lives, for many men, that's what kind of works. But for women, that doesn't really work because women and men, are different. Now, you know that, of course, as well as I do. But you keep on coming across more and more examples that leap up and they want to hit me between the eyes and you know and say, idiot, don't you realize men and women are different? Uh, one of the most recent ones was I looked at the statistics of the increasing number of women who are freezing their eggs. Now, there are a whole lot of uh, commercial enterprises now. That are making serious money freezing women's eggs. In other words, women are saying, I don't want to get married yet. I don't know if I am going to get married, but I do want to keep my options open for having children. And so uh, women reach a certain age coming, you know, to the point where uh, they are concerned and they they then arrange for eggs to be extracted. By the way, this is no simple matter. This is a major surgical procedure. And uh, eggs are extracted and frozen and put away, and the idea is that somewhere down the road, uh, they can, when you know, when uh, under whatever circumstances the woman uh, chooses, can, those eggs can be fertilized either anonymously or by a, by a husband or whatever it is, and then she can go ahead and have those eggs. Now, uh, f- when this started, this was mostly uh, women in their uh, 30s and 40s were doing this. Now, however, women in their 20s are doing it. Partially, they're saying, well, my eggs are at their strongest and their healthiest at this point. I don't know about uh, this, is not my area, but uh, all I can tell you is that a lot of women are doing this. The point I'm making, of course, is that I know men don't have eggs, and I know that uh, men have this uh, God-given ability to have no limit on the uh, quantity of seed their bodies produce, unlike women who have a specific finite number of eggs. Uh, for men, it's different. However, even assuming just for a moment that there was such a thing, could you see men saying, well, you know, I'd better preserve some of my seeds so, so I can always have children down the road? That would be very rare, very unusual. Not a lot of men do that or would, or would do that. Not a lot of men think of that. And so uh, whereas uh, women in their uh, 20s and 30s are very much aware of uh, childbearing, there's even a name for it, by the way, which I picked up from the women magazines, and it's called uh, baby hunger, because they say it's as palpable and as real as starvation, where everything in your body yearns painfully for a baby. Now, I'll tell you something, ladies – No matter what your husband might tell you about how excited he is about having a baby, no men have baby hunger. It's just not there. Uh, We're different. That's all there is. Um, I'll tell you another difference. You all know about instances of uh, high school teachers having sex with uh, students. And it's a crime, and uh, it gets prosecuted. Now, do you think, if you just had a guess, do you think it happens more with male teachers and susceptible comely female students or do you think it happens more with uh, female teachers and male students i think you would most likely say as as i would that if i didn't know anything at all i would have to say it's more of a phenomenon with um, men teachers and and female students and uh, The reasons are self-evident. But when you think about it, what you hear about in the news, and when you look at the the statistics on prosecutions, you'll find many more cases that are bizarre of uh, adult female teachers, some of whom are married, having relationships with male students. So the answer is that it actually happens both ways, and... uh, if anything, it's estimated that it happens more frequently with male teachers and female students. So why don't we hear about it? What's going on? Difference between men and women. Any 16-year-old boy, or for that matter, 15 or 17, whatever it is, who has had sex with a hot teacher talks about it. He w- and it gets discovered, and the prosecution takes place. But for the most part, girls who have an affair with a male teacher don't talk about it. In many cases, they're embarrassed about it. They don't talk, therefore, it doesn't get heard about as often, It doesn't get prosecuted as often. And when they do find out about it, the girls very often don't want to press charges. They just they don't want they don't want anybody to know about what happened. It's a difference between men and women uh, when they, they, there's a, a phrase that is now quite well known on the university campus in the wake of what's known as the hookup culture. It's called the walk of shame. What's the walk of shame? It is when a girl uh, goes out with a a guy uh, on Saturday night and the evening doesn't end and she stays the night and then she has to walk back to her dorm on Sunday morning in the same clothes that she went out on Saturday night. And the girls call it the walk of shame right? They're embarrassed about it. Can you see any man, any guy student saying, oh, I don't want to be seen. I've just had sex with my girlfriend. I don't want anyone to know. It's absurd, right? Doesn't work that way. Uh, Fundamental differences between men and women. And I want to give you one more because it's perhaps the most important of all uh, in terms of practical understanding of how the world really works. And, uh, And that one is the you know the Cinderella story, right? Everyone knows the Cinderella story. There is a parallel story called The Princess and the Peasant, excepting the roles are flipped. And uh, I want to tell you about that. And I think there's some variations on this, so uh, uh, have patience with me if I butcher the story in the version you are familiar with. But the one I'm familiar with and they' are all much of a muchness, but the one I know of is uh, the princess who um, didn't uh, she wasn 't she wasn't, uh, having a very good time with her parents in the castle she felt uh, she felt uh, stifled in the castle, and she felt her father, the king didn 't understand her much much like any uh, teenage girl, right and uh, she eventually goes for a walk out in the countryside, and she spots this handsome young peasant working in the field, and yes, they fall in love, and they get married, and they live happily ever after. Uh, There's another variation, which is she gets lost in the woods, and, uh, and the peasant finds her, and He's a pretty rough sort of guy, but basically good-hearted and kind, and he he helps uh, her get something. He he feeds her and keeps her warm, and uh, little by little, he uh, falls in love with her and she with him, and they get married, and now we have this princess, one-time princess, uh, keeping house in a small peasant's peasant's house in the forest far away from anywhere. uh, Those are the two uh, stories, basically. Now... Um, When I used to teach physics, one of my favorite questions uh, to put to uh, first-year physics students was the following. I said that um, I would like for you to read the book Gulliver's Travels, and if you don't have time to read the whole book, read about his travels in two particular places. Uh, One place was the Lilliput, where he found himself a giant compared to the locals, and another place where he found himself teensy compared to the local giants. And, um, and uh, Swift's novel was trying to make various, uh, various points. Uh, I think it was as much a political polemic as an adventure story. But uh, my question that I would ask my physics students was, assuming only one of those stories is true, which one is true, which one is definitely false? How can you possibly know, right? Well, the clue is that uh, I'm I'm telling it to physics students, and uh, if you have to uh, guess between two stories, one is a story of huge people beings, and another one is a story about teensy weensy little people, uh, which is uh, which is more likely? Well. The answer is that uh, giants don't exist for the same reason that there are not a lot of creatures the size of elephants, because size, as you go up in size, it is a disadvantage in life, not an advantage. Why is that? Because your weight goes up much more quickly than the strength of your bones and your muscles. For those of you who are uh, interested in the uh, mathematics of it, it's the difference between the cube and the square. But uh, for the rest of us, it's quite enough to say that you reach a point where the weight crushes the muscles and the bones. It it just can't work. But when you go down small, the opposite happens. The relative strength increases. And that's why you have enormously strong teensy-weensy insects, right? There are beetles. There are uh, even ants, which do feats of strength that uh, that. You know, are, are, are beyond anything a person could do, size for size. And so sometimes by analyzing a situation, you can tell whether a story is, is realistic or not. Um, so it is with the story of Cinderella and the story of the uh, peasant and the princess, using the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom rather than the principles of physics, it's quite easy to tell which one is more likely. And the explanation, of course, is that men and women are quite different and that uh, men are um, will, will will be very drawn to women in, in a lower situation. I'm not talking about low class or badly behaved. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that for a woman to come from a uh, – Uh, A a, a non-wealthy environment is not necessarily an impediment for her to marry a prince. Uh, The other way around, well, that is problematic because most women want to be with a man who is bigger than them, smarter than them, and richer than them, than they are. That's a reality. Most women would rather be with somebody who has more money than them. Now, for men, it doesn't matter. On the contrary, for a man to marry a woman who has more money than him is not only something that deep down is not what the woman wants, but deep down it's not even what the man wants because bringing home the bacon is part of masculinity. Feeling needed on that level is a huge boost for men and that's why it is that men's sexual identity is so strongly tied in to their ability to make money the reverse is simply not true Uh, when if, if a woman loses her job her femininity does not take a hit in any way at all many women report exactly the opposite the vulnerability increases and Many women experience this, tell me about it, and can't explain it. They're asking me what's going on. They suddenly find that their social life improves when they lost their job or they stopped working or whatever it was. Sure, because now the man you were with felt needed. He felt useful. Big difference. Uh, Tragically, we've had ample opportunity to study the effect on men, who lose their jobs. There was the logging industry in the Northwest that got killed by a frantic and bogus panic about the spotted owl. Um, There are uh, some of the mill towns of the Northeast. There have been the the Rust Belt in the Midwest. Unfortunately, there have been many, many instances where uh, doctors have been able to research what happens to men who lose their jobs. And, and tragically, and again, I think any guy knows about that link. Deep down, uh, there, there is very much a feeling of losing a job and feeling less of a man. There are even, even situations I've spoken to men who retire and suddenly feel they're not pulling in the money they were, and they, they feel they've taken a blow to their masculinity. And it's not good enough to say, oh, don't be silly, because it isn't silly at all. It is part of what a man is and who a man is. And so the Cinderella story gets played out over and over and over again all the time. It's, um, you know, it's, it's the first-class traveler marrying a flight attendant he met on a flight. Uh, when, when do you ever hear of a female business executive asking the male flight attendant for a date? It's laughable because, you know, it wouldn't happen. It's impossible. But it does happen the other way around. The Cinderella story works all the time, all the time. And I've I've said in the past that uh, I I fully recognize the danger inherent in um, uh, romantic relationships in the workplace, I really see it. And I sympathize with companies who who try and prohibit it or or set up various uh, structures within human resources to control it. I understand because of the perils and the business risks involved. Um, At the same time, I feel unhappy about it from the point of view of women because a job in business for women was very often – a step to a good marriage. Because look at it. You're spending eight of your best hours a day at work. And um, what happens? You you, know, you go home, it's the end of the day, you're tired, and you're now supposed to build your social life in the hours you've got left, you know, before, before it's time to go to sleep. So to rule out the possibility of a romance in the workplace, I think is uh, a blow to women. And, um, but I understand it. I, I, do, I do see the peril. I just I feel it's, uh, it's a shame that, um, that, that women are not able to, or men for that matter, to, to find a, a life mate among the people you know so well through spending day after day after day with them at work. I've also been following a conversation between women that I'm finding very interesting. This is among high-achieving women high-earning women. And uh, they're complaining a lot lately. And, again, this is uh, just over the last few months I've come across this a great deal. It, it flows over my uh, uh, my radar screen. When I say my radar screen, I'm very fortunate because I have a big network of correspondents, f- longtime friends, who know exactly what interests me. And they send me stuff, and nine, 99 times out of 100 – uh, it's stuff I, I want to tell you about. It's useful. It's it's really important uh, socio-cultural information. And and one of them that I came across lately was was, was in fact sent to me. It was women complaining that um, they they date men high-earning men at work, and they do. Uh, they meet people uh, sometimes. It's not at their own place of work, but. What they complain about is that these men then marry somebody lower than them and they get very indignant and they start getting very sarcastic and very insulting towards the men. Oh, they're frightened. They're threatened by strong women. Uh, and I've covered this before. I've spoken about this in a podcast uh, some months ago. Uh, but no, it's ladies, we're not threatened. I promise you we're not intimidated by strong women. It really isn't that at all. Uh, we we love strong women. We many of us are married to strong women, um, but what we don't like are strong women who have no femininity left in them. Um, strong women who feel that they have to be men. And uh, you're right. We we don't care for that very much. I wouldn't say intimidated. I wouldn't say threatened by. But we don't care for that much. And these women are complaining and grumbling that. Um, That after they date these guys, they then, a little while goes by, they hear the guys got engaged. And to whom? And it's, in the words of one of them, um, it's to some little trollop who brings him his coffee at the office. Well, guess what? Being given food by a woman is enormously, shall I say, sexual. It's very real, it's a strong thing. It's one of the reasons that, uh, while uh, women make a great deal of noise about equality and uh, and women can do whatever men can do, uh, the fact remains that women are very harsh on men who uh, accept their offer to split the bill. Women are very harsh on that. So uh, uh, the you know, women say, "Oh, they they offer they offer to share." The cost, especially on a first date, they sh- offer to share the dinner, but uh, men uh, men who take them up on that offer are through. They, they don't want to know about it. Well, it's what I said before. Women prefer to marry men who can financially take care of them, even if they love working and they plan on working. They love the idea, and it's, by the way, totally legitimate. I've got no problem with that at all. But uh, what um, uh, turns out to be a little bit is that uh, regardless of who's paying let us say that the uh, the meal uh, finishes off with coffee and the way it's done is not two cups of coffee but a pot of coffee is brought with two cups and there's a little jug of creamer and sugar in in some nice restaurants that's how they do it if uh, if there are a few people or two people dining they don't just bring the coffee they bring a pot in that case who pours and I think you will not be shocked. You probably experienced it yourself. That in the overwhelming majority of cases, um, it's the woman who pours the cups, uh, not the man. Why? Because we love eating and drinking food that a woman we're interested in makes for us. Right? That's just a real thing. Um, all of which is to say that the uh, the, uh, the 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 the, mascul- the masculinity and femininity thing is a big deal and so uh for as i've said before a man who doesn't have a feminine woman in his life there's no question about it that it is a uh, a problem it detracts from his happiness but men do have uh, various ways of somewhat coping um women however are stuck a woman who doesn't have a good man in her life, and uh, and I, I I stress, you know, we, we always use the word good man, and, and that I take almost for granted, right? Good man, I, I take it as a, grant, uh, as a given, but she wants something else. Women need a masculine man in their lives, and it's very difficult because nobody's teaching men to be masculine anymore, don't forget. And it's a, a source of great frustration, particularly to young women. Because uh, their choice out there is thugs and wimps. And they don't want a thug, but they don't want a wimp. What happened to a good but strong masculine man? Um, that is a source of great happiness for women, just as a, as a very feminine woman is a source of great happiness for a man. And uh, for women, the damage that has been inflicted on the culture by uh, by uh, Diminishing uh, diminishing masculinity and, and the availability of good, strong, masculine men, neither thugs nor wimps, uh, that is a very big problem. And so, again, in exploring women's depression, uh, I would have to say that this is part of it. And what's worse is that when women try and solve the problem in a masculine kind of a way, which many women do today, uh, it's not just the... Uh, vulgar language that women use, but it's also the, the casual approach to sex that women have been encouraged to adopt, and it's, it's destroying the university campus. Uh, the result, however, for women is added depression. For men, it's an illusion of happiness. It's another conquest. They feel good about it. it it's almost like a drug. For women, it's a source of great depression. And uh, those of you who are interested can even study the whole uh, rape phenomenon on the campus where uh, it's well accepted today that the lines of distinction between rape and regret have been blurred, to say the least, and that women who deeply and profoundly regret an encounter uh, retroactively turn it into rape – and thereby very often destroy the life of the career and the life of a man. In so doing, but the campus structure encouraged by the Obama administration uh, had to set up extremely aggressive procedures to deal with that kind of a thing. Again, uh, more evidence for women being depressed by the dearth of good, strong, masculine men. Uh, Where you will find information on feminine women and masculine men is in understanding Adam and Eve. And that's why I speak about the palindromic phrase that Adam used when he first met Eve, and he said, Madam, I'm Adam. And that actually is the title of one of the four programs in the um, Genesis uh, Journeys set and if you go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, you'll find information on it right there, and you'll be able to take a look, and I hope uh, enjoy it as well. It's called the Genesis Journey Set. It's at rabbidaniellappin.com. And while you're at rabbidaniellappin.com, please uh, go ahead and write to us, uh, subscribe to Thought Tools, make sure you're on our mailing list, and stay in touch. Connectivity is the secret to happiness. Uh, society has been crueler on women. Somehow, the, the kind of society we have evolved in the United States of America um, has been rougher on women than on men in, in certain areas, and particularly the area of uh, depression, sadness, being miserable. Uh, it does seem to be a problem that afflicts women more than men and uh, I'd like to uh, come up with one more ancient jewish wisdom uh, clue as to what my what might lie behind this phenomenon and and that is the following um, secrets of happiness right what what makes us happy well I spoke earlier about embracing our Uh, realities as men or as women, right? Obviously, uh, the whole transgender movement has resulted in some very unhappy people, right? Because instead of helping people adapt to who they are, we are encouraging this notion that they should be unhappy with who they are, male or female, and that they should then mutilate themselves in order to bring about the desired change, Okay, fine. Uh, the desire, oh, and, and by the way, uh, suicide rates among transgendered people, not good. Uh, and it's not because of society, right? Don't don't buy into that uh, travesty. You hear it all the time. Oh, the reason transgender people um, are so sad and so depressed is because of the way they're treated by society. Look, they're treated with kid gloves by society, uh, I'd say the, uh, the the treatment they get is unparalleled, so it's it's certainly nothing to do with with, with the level of treatment. Uh, but that is a perfect example of unhappiness coming from rejecting who the unchangeable aspect of who you are. Uh, but there's another part, another great secret to happiness, and um, it is creativity through self-control now what i mean by this is that the act of creativity is the act of sublimating our baser instincts to bring into existence something of greater value it can be building a business it can it can be uh, uh Bringing a child into the world and raising a child its certainly the ultimate act of creativity. Uh, it, it can be uh, building a home. It can be uh, all kinds of things. It can even be uh, creating a genuine work of art. Uh, creativity produces enormous happiness in the human being. However, it's a secondary step because in order to genuinely create – you actually have to sublimate the self. You have to stop doing what you feel like doing, and you have to do what your soul is calling you to do. And in the, um, you know, in the case of building a business, it's really a lot easier to go on welfare than it is to build a business. But one has to throw oneself into it and, uh, and, and make it uh, a hard, driving push That takes incredible effort and causes pain. Let's face it, there's no question about it. All acts of creativity are like that. In the art world, by the way, I did put in the caveat of genuine art because most of what passes for art today, certainly the stuff that is funded by the National Endowment of the Arts… Uh, and a lot of other stuff is nothing but the maudlin outpourings of diseased egos. I don't, I don't accept this stuff as art in any way whatsoever. It isn't. It's as I say, uh, maudlin outpourings of diseased egos is what I think of it as. So uh, the the secret, however, to all of this is uh, self control to overcome the the lower natures of ourselves. Now, at its most basic. A tremendous satisfaction, a tremendous sense of joy, deep joy and happiness comes from overcoming one's nature. Uh, People who go on a diet and keep to it and are losing weight regularly are not only feeling healthier, but they're also feeling happier. Everybody knows that because conquering your nature, overcoming your nature, brings deep happiness. You follow what I'm saying? It's really important. Uh, Somebody who starts working out. Let's say uh, she's a runner, and she starts running regularly, and she gets the runner's high. Uh, It's happy-making because of the pain involved, because of the overcoming everything that is natural in us. That's where deep inner joy comes from. And so this is one of the reasons that um, the whole question Con, you know, in, in terms of uh, American tradition, pursuit of happiness. Um, everybody knows that there is nothing as elusive as happiness when you try and pursue it directly. Deep, real happiness, um, soul-searing joy, so profound and powerful that it becomes palpable, uh, that kind of deep happiness comes from overcoming what uh, what we think of, certainly in ancient Jewish wisdom, this whole discussion is uh, comes under the topic of overcoming one's evil inclination. You know, what's one's evil inclination? Everything that works towards stopping you from making progress. The evil inclination that tells you what you should do rather than sitting down to write your great novel – what you should do rather than getting up and, and baking a cake, what you should do rather than going to work, what you should do rather than getting married and raising a family. All of those things pulling you in the wrong direction, pulling you towards a more destructive life and away from the things that are creative, uh, that is the, the uh, it's called the evil inclination. You can call it whatever you like, but overcoming that, produces this deep surging happiness you feel right there in your heart you know it's real now uh, for boys there's quite a lot of that early on boys are i mean one of the most uh, powerful evil inclinations in boys is for violence right Pushing things, beating things, kicking things, killing things—I mean, breaking things—that that's what we have deeply within us. It's, it's an instinct implanted in us, and from the youngest age, we're we're saying to the boy, "No, do not hit your sister. You may not hit your sister." Whatever it is, uh, we are bringing that under control. In so doing, we are giving our children, our boy children. Uh, the opportunity to, to feel this inner happiness because overcoming it right, is a source of real happiness. Another area for men to overcome is sexuality. Right now, needless to say, uh, it doesn't mean I'm not talking about annihilating these instincts, right? Uh, if a man has to defend himself, he certainly does need his uh, instinct to, to inflict violence lively and healthy if he uh, if he's in the military or in in any of the armed services or, or loyal yeah he's got to be able to uh, deal with the flow of adrenaline and uh, and and use violence for purposes that are appropriate in the same way uh, men's instinct is to have sex with as many women as possible in as uncaring a way as possible and and sure enough uh, talking of, of female unhappiness and depression, hello, yes, <laughs> what's the surprise? But, um, again, what responsible parents do is raise boys with a uh, not suppressing, not annihilating the, the sexual drive in any way whatsoever, but uh, helping direct it into marriage. And a, a sexually vibrant, vital uh, stimulating man is, is a delight in the life of any woman. So certainly not suppressing it or or, or uh, d- d- damaging it in any way at all, but very definitely uh, directing it in, in its most productive way. So from their youngest age, boys have this uh, tendency to um, to exert control over their evil inclinations, if you like. Uh, they know it should be done, and every time they do it, they feel better for it. Every time they do it, there's a tiny little jolt of happiness that strikes in, All right? It's uh, on the school playground. You know, the boy who who um, resists the temptation to punch out the guy who's uh, annoying him walks away and— On the surface of it, there's a feeling as I hope no one thinks I'm scared of him. But deeper down, there is a feeling of I kept my control. I didn't lose my temper. Source of big happiness. And and in fact, men men who have lost their temper feel embarrassed about it afterwards, right? Any time we lose our temper, we we don't feel good about it because it was the opposite of maintaining control and self-discipline. These are sources of great delight uh, to the men. Now, what is the equivalent for women? What is the uh, what might you say is the evil inclination? What is built into women that would be great if they would also exert control over and have that sense of of discipline and structure? And uh, the answer is a tendency to be totally shaped by their emotions. Now, again, nobody's suggesting, least of all me, that uh, women should not have emotions or not be emotional. No, of course not. Nothing like that at all. Simply the the idea that uh, to make your decisions on the basis of how you feel makes you miserable. That is yielding instead of controlling. And... Uh, For a variety of reasons, whatever they are, uh, women have been conditioned over the last 30 years to believe that their feelings are paramount, that everybody wants to know what you're feeling, that everybody cares about it, that it's crucially important. And uh, the answer is, that isn't really how it is. That's why you have sisters. That's why you have female friends, not male friends, female friends. And yes, that's why you have a husband. Those are the only people who care about how you feel, and even they, within measure and within limitations. But uh, I think the culture has told women that there are no limits to the importance of your feelings, and that is an absolute reliable recipe for misery. And so I think that that has a lot to do with what really is going on here. So, uh, what is the antidote to d- depression? What's the cure? For unhappiness, and again, I'm not. I'm not talking about clinical level depression, for which a treatment is, is uh, certainly recommended. But the the low level depression that, again, any any person feels at different times. Well, what are what are the secrets? How how do we deal with them? Well, think about this. If a person has a great marriage and no money worries. Wouldn't you say that that person has no excuse not to be happy? And somebody might say, well, what about health? And the answer is yes, health is obviously a tremendously important one. And uh, the reason I don't include it, though, is that uh, so – I I have to tell you, holistic health is 2,000 years old. Ancient Jewish wisdom knows all about holistic health. I remember hearing about it for the first time in the culture in the 80s. And uh, I was a rabbi in California at the time, and people started telling me about holistic health. So uh, I gave a few lectures on ancient Jewish wisdom and the Bible's view of holistic health blew their minds. They were absolutely blown away because they thought they'd invented it. But this idea that, uh, that our physical health is very much a function of, of how we, are. again, obviously there are uh, things happen, things happen. Uh, but in general, physical health can be enormously helped. By a state of mind, nothing more important than a state of happiness, and so uh, that's why I speak about the main uh, the main things that produce happiness: a great marriage, and no money worries, and everything else falls into place. See, so obviously, uh, the the two things that gix do not teach young people, the two things that government indoctrination centres do not teach children while they have them as a captive audience from the ages of five to 17, the two things they teach them nothing about are marriage and money. That's the we're at. So obviously, obviously happiness is an enormous problem. Clearly. Uh, what are we supposed to do? Well, uh, first of all, I, I'm a very uh, big proponent of um, making sure that uh, if you're a man that your masculinity is intact, that if you're a man that you are comfortable with masculinity and and you are who you are. Not that you are comfortable with your level of masculinity because you've got to look and see whether or not social forces have not uh, indoctrinated you into suppressing some of your masculinity. I, it's it's a big topic to talk about big topic to think about it far far beyond what we can cover in uh, the few minutes left remaining to us in today's show but uh, we will continue on this topic in in future shows and delve more deeply into it uh, for a woman uh, rediscover your femininity discover the joy in surrender to a man N- not just physically but emotionally in in every way uh, all of these things the culture has been trying to drum out of us over the uh, the last few decades, and, it, um, and and it's terribly important. It's it, it, we, We've got to make sure that the young people whom we have the ability to influence have an awareness of, of what the damage is that has been inflicted so they can at least be aware of it, so they can try to counteract it. It's a problem. There is no question about it. And that – as always, for me, far too soon brings us to the end of today's show. And so I, your rabbi, wish you a wonderful week ahead. Don't forget to please visit our store at rabbi.daniellappen.com. It's also a good place to write to us. And uh, please take a look at the annual sale On the library packs, there are two different library packs. There's a variation between them, which you'll readily understand if you take a look at them at the website on rabbidaniellappin.com. Have a wonderful week of good times with your family, with your friends, with your finances, and with your faith. I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family faith friendship and finance this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network